from VOA, Press Conference USA. Here is your host, Carol Castiel. Welcome to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. I'm Carol Castiel. Our topic on this edition of the program, a tribute to PEPFAR, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, created by former President George W. Bush. Our guest, Emily Bass, veteran AIDS activist, journalist, and historian, and author of the new book, To End a Plague, America's Fight to Defeat AIDS in Africa. The book chronicles the history of this groundbreaking war against the global pandemic of AIDS. Launched in 2003 by George W. Bush, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, also known as PEPFAR, is, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, quote, the largest commitment ever by any nation to address a single disease, close quote. The CDC adds that $85 billion allocated over the years by the United States has stopped millions of HIV infections, led to control of the disease in over 50 nations, and preserved the lives of 20 million people. According to PEPFAR's website, over the course of two decades, the landmark program has helped to control the pandemic and to transform HIV diagnoses from death sentences to something that can be survived. Emily Bass's new book, To End a Plague, America's Fight to Defeat AIDS in Africa, focuses on the history of PEPFAR, giving a detailed account of its pivotal moments. Bass says of former President George W. Bush that notwithstanding considerable controversy over his other foreign policies, such as the Iraq War and the use of so-called enhanced interrogation techniques, quote, his words ended years of American negligence. Bush launched the largest disease-specific foreign aid effort in the history of the country and the world. He also brought to an end an era of shameful American heel-dragging over whether people in Africa living with HIV and dying of AIDS deserved access to the medications that had changed HIV from a death sentence to a chronic disease in people who could afford them, unquote. Emily Bass has spent 20 years as a journalist and advocate focused on AIDS in Africa and American foreign aid. She has served as an external expert to the World Health Organization. Bass's pieces on HIV-AIDS in Africa and the United States have been published in the Washington Post, Foreign Policy Esquire, and many other publications. And Emily Bass joins us via Microsoft Teams to talk about her new book, To End a Plague, America's Fight to Defeat AIDS in Africa. Emily, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, first of all, Emily, congratulations on this excellent book. And of course, I want to ask you, what prompted you to write it in the first place? So I wanted to know what was going to happen. And what was going to happen from the moment after George W. Bush completed his remarks in the State of the Union, January 28th, 2003, it's the speech that's really remembered for essentially taking us to war, although Congress had authorized use of force in the previous year. But in the midst of the speech, he committed to spending $15 billion over five years to provide treatment for people living with HIV in many countries, but particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And he quoted a price, an affordable price for those medications that was the result of profoundly powerful, bold, risk-taking, transnational activist movement that had said quite clearly uh, that it was unacceptable for pharmaceutical companies to prioritize profits over people's lives. And this should sound very familiar and sadly is tragically familiar to what's going on with COVID and access to vaccines right now. 
And this movement was the milieu, it was the community that I found myself in as an activist-oriented HIV journalist in New York City in the late 90s. And I had watched this movement and participated in it and chronicled it as it mounted this campaign to have the price of the drugs come down. And when those drugs became affordable, the question was, who was going to purchase them and who was going to pay for them? Because even at a dollar a day, with the millions of people living with HIV in East and Southern Africa and in low and middle income countries around the world, there had to be a global war chest to purchase them. And on January 28th, 2003, President Bush announced the American approach. It was different from the global approach. There was and is a global fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. Both funds still exist to this day, so PEPFAR and the global fund. But I really set out to understand what the world was going to look like when this massive infusion of resources and targets and a real drive to end a pandemic was launched. I wanted to know what was going to happen. And what did your research tell you about what motivated former President George W. Bush to launch such an important and consequential program for Africa, which has continued through subsequent administrations? So PrepFlar launches in a really turbulent, terrifying time. It's post 9-11. There are protests on a daily basis, including the day of the State of the Union. Millions of people filling the streets around the world, trying to forestall the invasion of Iraq, trying to roll back or to halt or to break a march to war that really on some level seemed inevitable from September 12, 2001. And so PEPFAR is often characterized as sort of the compassionate counterweight or an intervention that was sort of part of the march to military war strategy. And what became really clear as I was speaking to many of the White House staff who helped bring this to light, as well as the scientists, Dr. Tony Fauci was instrumental in helping to design PEPFAR, as was Dr. Mark Diable, is that PEPFAR itself, the desire to do something big and transformative regarding HIV in Africa, really had its own storyline. It was not a post-9-11 response. It was informed by a lot of interest on the part of evangelical Christians and also by a president who, by his own account, was very moved by roots, by a visit to the Gambia, by standing in slave forts, who had a sort of sense of wanting to have impact and to take action to transform lives in Africa. And there's a lot to unpack around where those motivations come from, around what different kinds of transformative action might have looked like. But he really wanted to do something substantial. And what he then does, which is unusual in American foreign aid and unusual if you look at his approach to other wars, is that the plan for how to spend the resources and how to take action against HIV in Africa is incredibly detailed, incredibly specific, incredibly rigorously researched so that when it launches, when he gives the speech, there is a whole game plan behind it. What are we going to try to do? How are we going to know if we've succeeded? Who's going to get the money? And it's a very different approach to foreign aid and global health than has been taken before. So he wants to do something, and he wants to do something that he knows is going to show impact. And those two desires are independent of all of the other geopolitical events that were going on at the time. That's really fascinating. And I have to tell you from personal experience, I've talked to many Africans, and they really herald President Bush. There are streets named after him for his PEPFAR program. In some ways, he is actually more popular than Africa's native son, Barack Obama, but that's Mm -hmm. a whole different story. But he really is, this program has raised him in the minds of Africans, particularly those 
country's hardest hit, Uganda and, of course, South Africa. But so let me ask you, before we get into more of the narrative, how would you describe the significance of PEPFAR and why it became such a game changer for the continent? So at the moment that PEPFAR launches, fewer than 50,000 people living with HIV in Africa have access to antiretrovirals, and there are millions who need it. And what is missing at the time in most of those countries is a healthcare system that can deliver medications to adults that is a lifelong course of medication. So sort of the public health parlance would be sort of adult ambulatory care. You walk in, you get your drugs, you leave, you're regularly monitored. In impoverished nations and in low-income settings, there's childhood immunization programs, there's maternal health. If you're lucky, there may be some hospital services. But the idea of having a functioning health system that is treating people with a chronic condition is still very, very far out of reach and sadly, tragically still far out of reach um, in many places to this day. But when the world, and it is Bush, it is also the activists and the physicians and the people with HIV who impelled visible power, right? The government, you know, as sort of a seat of visible power, impelled action by proving that it was possible to treat poor people in poor countries with low-tech approaches. So the proof is there, and that's what Dr. Dybul and Dr. Fauci draw on from these sort of pilot cases and these small programs. So Paul Farmer is doing one in Haiti and Peter Mugeni is doing one in Uganda and John Pop is doing one in Haiti. And all of those physicians I named are called in to advise actually at critical moments before the launch of PEPFAR. But these are small programs. And the question still is, how do you build this at scale? How do you build an ambulatory care program for millions of people who need regular refills of medications? How do you build a supply chain system? How do you train the physicians? How do you get the drugs where they need to be and the tests and the diagnostics? And I have described this effort as a moonshot, and it's been interesting the reactions that that provokes, right? Is that grandiose? Is that jingoistic? I think we are also battered by the immense failures around COVID in the prior administration and the destruction and degradation of trust in American government and American government's relationship to public health in the Trump administration, that it's hard to conceptualize that this really was, in terms of the technical scale and the scope and the array of people and the problems that had to be solved, bringing HIV treatment to scale in low and middle income countries, particularly in East and Southern Africa, was a truly moonshot-esque endeavor. It didn't mean building a high-tech rocket. It meant finding low-tech, community-derived solutions, but in terms of the value of those and the intelligence and the wisdom and the technical pieces that had to be figured out, it was monumental. You're listening to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. My guest is Emily Bass, author of the new book, To End a Plague, America's Fight to Defeat AIDS in Africa. I'm Carol Castiel, and this is a reminder that our Press Conference USA podcast is available for free download on our website at voanews.com slash PCUSA. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Here's a shout out to a loyal listener and Facebook fan, Ibrahim Ismaila from Zaria, Nigeria. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to PCUSA at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. And please listen to our sister current affairs programs, Issues in the News and Encounter. Issues moderator Kim Lewis talks with VOA correspondents Cindy Sane and Chris Simpkins about the top stories of the week, including the resignation of Andrew Cuomo, the once popular mayor of New York City, and the Taliban's 
seemingly inexorable advance in Afghanistan. On Encounter, we reprise our conversation about the pros and cons of statehood for the nation's capital. Did you know that the 700,000 residents of Washington, D.C. do not have voting representation in Congress? This despite the fact that the District of Columbia has more residents than the states of Vermont and Wyoming. Listen to Issues in the News and Encounter this Saturday and Sunday. And now back to our conversation with Emily Bass, author of a terrific new book, To End a Plague, America's Fight to Defeat AIDS in Africa. And Emily, before the break, we were talking about how complex the PEPFAR program was and how, in fact, it proved that it could be effective in a continent with a rather fragile health system and uh, with a lot of uh, impoverished people. And I remember in the book you talked about one of George W. Bush's key advisors, a man named Gary Edson, and how he also showed an interrelationship between the PEPFAR program and another program launched by George W. Bush, the uh, Millennium Challenge Corporation and USAID. Talk about the interrelationship between these programs and why that helped make PEPFAR all the more perhaps effective in Africa. It's a great question. And that interrelationship that you're talking about really is a very complex set of politically charged relationships um, between different agencies and initiatives and entities that are under the U.S. government umbrella and charged with implementing different aspects of our foreign aid, our development aid, our non-military aid. And anybody who is listening, who lives in a country that is a recipient of American aid, knows how fragmented it can be and knows how there can be duplication and knows how there can be inefficiencies and knows, unfortunately, how often American groups are contracted with significant overhead to come into countries and do things that local groups and local community-led groups could do better and cheaper and faster. So the aid approach, foreign aid approach in America, has been really sort of bedeviled since the U.S. Agency for International Development was launched by John F. Kennedy in 1961. USAID has never had full congressional support. It has a lot of restrictions on what it can and can't do. And in the context of the launch of PEPFAR, the decision was made not to put it under USAID, but rather to have it be a freestanding initiative in the State Department with an ambassador-level position and a whole-of-government approach, as it was called. So all of the agencies doing relevant work had to come together. This becomes relevant today for people both within the U.S., where I sit, and around the world who are watching the White House, watching the Biden-Harris administration, and wondering when there is going to be a major, cohesive, ambitious, urgently needed American global COVID response. It's urgently needed. And so some of these structural elements, where is it going to sit? Who's going to run it? And is the structure going to solve for entrenched inefficiencies and entrenched tensions between U.S. agencies that have strengths and that also have weaknesses and that at the best of times do better work together than they do in isolation. So PEPFAR is an attempt to solve for that problem, to solve for those tensions and to solve for the inefficiencies that come from agencies working independently. The Millennium Challenge Corporation is another aid innovation that is undertaken. Scholars of foreign aid have pointed out that Bush actually did more to sort of transform U.S. foreign aid than any other president other than JFK, John F. Kennedy, in his administration. And the Millennium Challenge Corporation is another intervention. It doesn't have the same world-changing success, but it does introduce principles of linking 
aid to impact into the sort of global ecosystem of thinking about aid that can still be found to this day. But I think in answer to your question, several things get tried in the Bush administration. One of them, PEPFAR, endures across four presidents, nine Congresses, retains full funding. The Millennium Challenge Corporation never receives the full funding that had originally been sought for it. And so we have to continue to return to it and say, well, why? What's working here? And what parts of it do we pick up? And what parts of it are not applicable? What could we change? Well, that's really fascinating. And I wanted to ask you, since you brought up COVID, what does the administration of the PEPFAR program teach us about managing global pandemics. What can we learn from the way it was administered to control the COVID pandemic and to help other countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, get the vaccines and you know use preventative methods? Because you actually did allude to the Biden-Harris administration. This is a big challenge for them. So it, it has a wealth of lessons. And it's also important to name that AIDS is ongoing and exacerbated tragically by COVID and that PEPFAR itself nearly eight months into the Biden-Harris administration does not have a politically appointed head. And it has a very strong team that's been leading it in the absence of that politically appointed head. But that vacuum in leadership is quite concerning because every day that goes past without that ambassador level position formally appointed is a day that this program that has immense work to do and ground to regain in the context of HIV and COVID does not have all of the strength that it could possibly have. So I I wanted first and foremost say everybody knows who is listening in the audiences in, in Africa particularly, but around the world that AIDS is not over. When it comes to COVID, what we do not yet have from the U.S. government is an ambitious, audacious, target-based global COVID response plan. We do not yet have a presidential initiative that says it is this number of vaccines for countries beyond our borders by this time. And we are also investing this amount of money in building the infrastructure to deliver the vaccines. Started out talking about how complex it was to bring AIDS drugs. It's not a matter simply of having the pills be purchased. It's how do you get them? How do you manage the supply systems? Adult immunization programs don't exist in many countries. So how do you get the commodities? How do you get the systems? How do you get the vaccine workers trained? How do you ensure that the information campaigns are out there so that the enormous amounts of vaccine misinformation, vaccine hesitancy, vaccine refusal that are challenging us right now in the U.S. are mitigated? And the answer that emerges in the global AIDS response that must be listened to is the best solutions are the ones that come from impacted groups and come from frontline organizations. PEPFAR set this example early on by investing the country that I know the best is Uganda. So I moved there when PEPFAR started investing in local organizations that were ready to go, non-governmental organizations or parastatals that were ready to go and provide treatment. At the end of the period that's covered in the book before COVID, under the leadership of Ambassador Deborah Burks, who then became the coronavirus coordinator, the program was moving to put the bulk of its resources into what it calls indigenous organizations, which are organizations registered in and led by people from the countries where PEPFAR is spending its money, moving away from U.S.-based contractors. And that wisdom that the solutions and the leadership derive from civil society, government, non-governmental actors in these countries is fundamental, and it must be part of a U.S. response and a global response. So let me ask you to talk about now your experience, particularly in Uganda. You lived there for 16 years, if I'm not mistaken. Talk about your experience there 
even President Museveni, who was famous for having a rather effective strategy to combat AIDS, some of the shortcomings maybe. How did you see the impact of PEPFAR, particularly in Uganda? So I would have loved to have lived in Uganda for 16 years. I absolutely would have loved that. I moved there in 2004, and I was there continuously for the first year and a half of PEPFAR's implementation, and then returned regularly three or four times a year for many years after that. And when I was living there and on the return trips, I was lucky enough to find clinics around the country um, with different approaches to providing antiretrovirals from very traditional nurses and white hat clinic hospital-based programs to very utopian programs where guys on motorcycles, ladies on motorcycles delivered drugs and everything else a household needed on the back of the bike to people in their homes. And I went back and back and back to these programs over the years and was able to follow clients, follow providers, follow the Ugandan leadership of these programs and the government and the activists who, again, are front and center, are the reason that these programs succeed. People who are willing to disclose their HIV status or are willing to talk about about being a woman living with HIV like Lillian Moreco are willing to live the truth of being a proud gay man like Richard Lucimbo. These are people in the book and they're also people in the fight. And what happened over the years in Uganda is a real reckoning with the extent to which all public health is also political. I would say that President Museveni early in his leadership had really established himself as a, in his presidential leadership, I should say, global leader, an African leader willing to talk about the epidemic in his country and received a lot of attention and a lot of resources and deservedly so, I think even Ugandan activists would say. And that over the years, as American resources and other resources came in and the relationship between Museveni and funders and Western governments shifted, there was interest interest in having him have free and fair elections, perhaps not continue to be the president and to change the constitution. There was concern about human rights. There was concerns about handling of newly discovered oil. All these things change the feedback that a leader is getting from funders and donors who are also invested in fighting AIDS and are on the hook for doing it in a way, whether or not the president is supportive of their agendas. And so what emerged was, a, I believe, and others talk about this Ugandan as well, a very astute, sharp, political response on the part of President Museveni that really sort of begins to question the utility of certain kinds of HIV interventions that really begins to sort of say, we don't need your help, Western donors, you know, we're going to do it all ourselves. And that doesn't have the same level of presidential leadership that was in play earlier at the very beginning of the AIDS pandemic. That's fascinating. Could you talk about South Africa? Perhaps there's a contrast. Pablo Mbeki, he had some skepticism, did he not, vis-a-vis the AIDS pandemic? How do you see the cases in South Africa? So that's a really interesting question, and I will preface it by saying I've spent enough time in Uganda to be able to know what I don't know, and that anybody who's not from one of these countries should be very careful about giving broad overviews. But that being said, it is well documented that Tabumbeki's skepticism that HIV was the causative agent for AIDS and concerns and fears and rumors about the antiretrovirals that treat HIV being poisonous, being a profit-making scheme, which they certainly are, but they are not poison, they're life-saving, that was perpetrated by both the president and his minister of health, Tushabalala Misumang, 
it's been modeled out and this misinformation contributed to hundreds of thousands of deaths and the failure to implement a national treatment program and heel dragging on the part of the government in terms of bringing in a global fund grant. And there, the robust, resilient, incredible treatment action campaign, Section 27, AIDS Law Project, an army of ferocious women activists, the ones that I talk about in the book, Prudence Mabele, Yvette Raphael, really, really incredible leadership there. Again, made it impossible, made it impossible to maintain that position, which is quite different, as you're pointing out, from Museveni, who was very affirmative of AIDS interventions early on. And I think in both cases, and as well, looking at the U.S., our public health responses are always politicized, and we are wrong to ever take our eye off that ball. PEPFAR then comes in at the point that Becky is still in power and is able to really work with activist physicians and activists to get a treatment program up and running in a country that does not necessarily want one. And the leadership changes. And that is a nationally run and owned and led program now. PEPFAR is still there and playing a role, but it's almost as though you see sort of the story change in the sense that increasing ownership in South Africa, and I would say decreasing Ugandan government state house leadership of the AIDS response over the same time period. What challenges remain, Emily Bass, in the fight against HIV AIDS in Africa today? Are you confident that between the Global Fund and PEPFAR and indigenous activists that the fight can be maintained and progress will be made? Or to what extent will the COVID pandemic undermine progress against HIV AIDS? There are many, many concerns to raise. The one that I want to use the time that I have to raise my fear about is also one that Winnie Bianima, who is the leader of the UNAIDS, which is the United Nations coordinating entity working on AIDS, has been so vocal on. She is also Ugandan, by the way. Right now, 156 million children worldwide are still out of school due to COVID. In the U.S., we're talking about that in, in one way, and it is urgent, and we need to talk about what it means here. In many parts of the world, in Uganda, in East and Southern Africa, when girl children are out of school, they are at substantially higher risk of HIV. They are at substantially higher risk of being partnered with much older men. Um, the term child marriage really doesn't sit well with what, with what is happening when you have um, adolescent girls, young women, and children assigned female at birth who are not at the age of consent, who have not been able to finish their education, who are in partnerships out of school because their family lost their income because of shutdowns, because the informal economy has been shredded, because everybody is hungry. Those adolescent girls and young women were at substantially higher risk of HIV than their male counterparts before COVID. And their HIV risk has exploded under COVID. And we cannot, we cannot abandon them. We cannot leave them behind. And we cannot ignore the crisis in sexual and reproductive health and rights and HIV prevention and rights of girls and women and also um, LGBT folks and what is often sort of termed broadly the key population. So prisoners, migrants, people who use drugs, all of the groups that society marginalizes, devalues, despises, all of their risk is exacerbated under the conditions created by COVID when mobility, informal economy, education, all of those things are cut down. But the world's girls and women and young women are going to be experiencing a wave of HIV that we must foreground, even as we foreground the COVID waves that are preventable, that must be addressed by vaccine equity today. Well, that's an amazing insight and extremely critical. Certainly the Biden administration, 
you know, has a major challenge in front of itself, as well as the UN and other donors, they really need to take this seriously for the very reasons you just articulated. Do you think there's the political will to do so? Political will has a lot of ingredients. And what I can tell you right now is that almost everything that happened in the run-up to the bold presidential initiative on HIV that starts this book, that again, sustained over 18 years now, many of the key pieces are in place. So there is a bipartisan bill that has passed out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that calls for an enormous U.S. investment. There was just a, a letter that went to the White House signed by over 100 groups and individuals calling for a massive global COVID vaccine plan. And if you look back in the months prior to PEPFAR, the years prior to PEPFAR, the same things fell into place. You had bipartisan legislation, in this case from John Kerry and Bill Frist, co-authored with other other sponsors. And you had a massive sign-on letter that actually went to Bush in December 2002, so a month or so before he launched the initiative. So the political economy of this, you have an activist movement that is outraged, mobilized, and refusing to accept patents and profits over people's lives. So all of the elements are in place as they were with HIV. And so it is my and to be an activist, to do this work, you have to have a certain amount of hope against hope. And so I will say that looking at those and being someone who seeks hope, because otherwise, um, how do we get up in the morning? My hope is that the White House is preparing to respond to these cues, to repeat history, and to be bold, target-driven, ambitiously extravagant with the investments and to center activists and groups in low and middle income countries that are on the pandemic front lines. The book is To End a Plague, America's Fight to Defeat AIDS in Africa. The author, Emily Bass, a veteran AIDS activist, journalist, and historian. Emily, once again, congratulations on your book and thank you so much for your time and terrific insights on this program. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving me a chance to talk about this. Press Conference USA on The Voice of America was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Press Conference USA on The Voice of America.